Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. And uh, we're kicking off this week with a look at the science that's been making headlines around the world, uh, as we usually do. And uh, first up this week is information from the journal Science that uh, researchers at Hong Kong University, Dana Sekram Vijakrishna and colleagues, have discovered evidence that swine flu is flexing its microbial muscles and tooling up perhaps to spawn a fresh pandemic. This group have been monitoring pigs that are being sent to an abattoir for slaughter to see if they have any traces of flu when they arrive. And in the last about 13 months, they've picked up 32 cases of flu amongst these pigs, many of them the classical swine flu, which has been circulating in pigs for a very long time. But also, in January of this year, they found a strain of flu which is in fact derived from human swine flu, in other words, the pandemic strain, indicating that human flu had got back into these pigs. But here's the catch. The strain of virus they detected had actually mixed its genes up with the normal pig flu virus. So this is an entirely fresh form of potential pandemic virus. Now, the researchers were able to show that it can spread from one pig to another. It is infectious. It does cause a trivial illness in these pigs. But what they're saying is that this is clear evidence that this virus is very good at mixing and matching its genes with other viruses and that pigs are a very good way to make that happen because pigs can get infected with both human flus and their own flus and they enable viruses to what's called reassort, mix their genes up between the two different viral strains and therefore potentially produce pandemic strains of virus that can then affect us humans. Uh, the bottom line behind this study is we need more surveillance. Given how easy this seems to have been to detect, it must be happening a lot, say the scientists, and therefore we need to be looking for it in order to make sure that we're not missing a trick and missing the next pandemic when it comes along. Sarah. Well, also this week, a team of scientists have shown that one of the deadliest strains of malaria travelled with early humans as they left Africa and colonised Asia. The current understanding is that modern humans evolved in the Afar region of Ethiopia and about 55,000 years ago they began to migrate out of Africa to colonise what is now Europe and Asia. The paper published in Current Biology describes that there's a decline in the genetic diversity of the populations of Plasmodium falciparum as you move further away from sub-Saharan Africa. The team collected blood from individuals infected with falciparum from countries in Africa to Southeast Asia and South America. And because Plasmodium falciparum only infects humans, it can only have been transported out of Africa via humans. The team compared the genetic diversity of the parasite with the timing of migrations out of Africa. It's already well documented that the genetic diversity of human populations decreases as you move further away from sub-Saharan sub Africa excuse me, because people have simply been there for less time and there's been less time for new mutations to arise. The team found that the genetic diversity of the parasite decreased with distance in exactly the same way and the age estimates for the parasites fitted with the parasite accompanying the early migrating humans – with the exception, interestingly, of South America, where the results pointed to a much more recent invasion of the parasite, which they think was probably to do with the slave trade. And why do we think that this is important? Because we already know how humans migrated around the planet for the reasons you gave, which we can look at the genetic diversity of the people and also the bugs they carry, H. pylori, something we talked about on the show previously, the bacteria in the stomach. As you go for populations that have taken longer to get to where they have ended up, 
having left Africa, the diversity of the genes in those people and those parasites are lower? Well, the genetic diversity of the malaria parasite, like a lot of pathogens, the diversity plays a really important role in how dangerous it is to people. So knowing more about the global diversity of Plasmodium falciparum can help us to find better ways to fight it, which, given that falciparum is actually the most dangerous strain of malaria, is a very good thing. Yeah, 541 million cases a year, I think, is the, the current global disease burden caused by malaria. So that's very interesting to think that you might be able to see aspects of the parasite genetically by doing these sorts of studies that might hold the key to the next generation of drugs. Thank you, Sarah. Well, talking about parasites and things that cause us to be ill, there's a very interesting paper which has been published in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week. It's by researchers at City of Hope, which is a research institution in California, David Giugisto and his colleagues. And they have been looking at the question of HIV, talking about pandemics, and uh, probably the worst pandemic we've ever faced is HIV. 7,000 new infections with HIV happening every single day, 7,000 deaths from HIV, give or take, every single day. It's an important global health problem. We've got drugs for HIV, antiretrovirals. The problem with them is, is that although they're very good at reducing the amount of virus in the bloodstream and therefore helping to keep people who are infected with HIV healthy for a long time, the major problem is that the virus has another trick up its sleeve. It inserts a copy of its genetic material into the host's DNA. So even though someone may have very low levels of virus in their bloodstream, lurking inside their DNA is the genetic message for the virus, which can very easily come back out and produce new virus particles. And trying to get at that virus is impossible because it's part of you. So what the researchers now think is that we actually need a way to target the virus genetically. And so there's this school of thought that we need to create what are known as genetic medicines that will target this what's known as a pro-virus hiding inside our genome. What this group have done in California is to do one of the first trials of a successful technique that might just do that. They took patients who had HIV, they took white blood cells, stem cells from these patients, and in the dish they added to those cells genes which are known to make it more difficult for HIV to grow. So genes that either turn off the virus or act as decoys to stop some of the virus particles that, that are made during infection from being assembled into a mature virus. Once they knew that those cells had been transduced in this way, so in other words they could make these antiviral genes, they then put those cells back into the patients and followed them up. And two years after they began following them up, most of these seven patients have still got detectable cells making these messages in their bloodstream. And this shows you can safely transduce blood cells and put them into an antiviral state so they are better able to defend themselves from getting infected with HIV via this sort of technique. This is only an initial step, therefore it's very preliminary, but it does mean that we now know where to start and the next step will be to do a much bigger trial, putting many more cells into people like this and then following them up to see if the modified cells really do translate into a, a biological effect. In other words, the person is defending themselves better against HIV rather than it progressively damaging their immune system, which is what eventually causes AIDS. Sarah. Well, uh, another interesting story this week has come from researchers in Philadelphia who found that there's a difference at the molecular level between how male and female brains deal with a particular stress hormone, which could explain why women are more prone to stress or anxiety-related illnesses like post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. 
The study, published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry by Deborah Bangasser and her colleagues, compared the brains of male and female rats in stressed and unstressed situations. They measured the activity in the brain cells using electrodes and also took samples of the brain tissue to look for specific proteins. The stress hormone they were looking at is called corticotropic releasing factor, or CRF, and it's produced in a region of the brain called the hypothalamus. It plays a key role in stress, along with hormones from an area in the brainstem called the locus ceruleus. Activation of the locus ceruleus and the hypothalamus by a stressful stimulus or situation leads to the production of other hormones like adrenaline that can lead to many of the symptoms of stress disorders like sleeplessness and inability to concentrate. The team found that the female rats were much more sensitive to the CRF than the male rats, meaning that they would be more likely to react to a stressful situation than a male rat would be but they were also less able to deal with high levels of CRF. The males could lock it away in little sacs in the brain cells called vesicles, and this allowed them to adapt to the higher levels of CRF, but the females couldn't adapt and would continuously show the stress response. So what does this mean in a wider context? Well, this is only a study in rats. It may not translate directly to humans, but it does offer us a pretty good model. What's interesting is that because we now know that the CRF receptors in males and females' brains differ, and we know how they respond to the CRF, which means this could open up new avenues of research for drugs to treat things like depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. It also means that we may need to start looking at treating males and females with these disorders in a different way. Does this mirror what we see in humans? Are, are women generally perceived to be more vulnerable to prolonged stress than men are? It does seem that a higher proportion of the people who seek treatment for depression are women. So it, it does look like it does correlate with what we see in humans. Thank you very much, Sarah. Well, also in the news this week, um, a new type of material, one that gets thicker rather than thinner when you stretch it, this is called an auxetic material, is being developed by EPSRC-funded researchers and they're trying to provide better protection from the effects of bomb explosions. Jane Reck spoke to the inventors who are based at Exeter University. In this research laboratory, cutting-edge science and technology is getting a helping hand from an old-fashioned machine, a traditional craft loom. But instead of weaving cotton for clothing, it's making a completely new type of fabric. It's a material that will give much better protection from the effects of bomb explosions and severe weather events such as typhoons and hurricanes. The project uses auxetic materials and is led by Professor Ken Evans at the University of Exeter. An auxetic material is unusual in that it's a material which, when you pull it, does something that you would not normally expect. If you imagine pulling a rubber band, two things obviously happen when you pull it. It gets longer, and at the same time it gets thinner. And this is a very easy thing to see with a piece of rubber. But that's, in fact, the case with any material. If you could pull a piece of steel, you would find it was getting thinner as it was getting longer. Auxetic materials do exactly the opposite. When you pull them, they get longer, but at the same time they get fatter. This particular project is about blast mitigation. It's about using auxetic materials 
to make a textile which we can then produce a curtain material from which will act to mitigate blasts in an explosion situation. And auxetic materials, we believe, have particular characteristics will mean that they absorb energy much more effectively than the current conventional materials. The hands-on work of identifying which materials need to be used, the manufacturing and testing of the yarns, and analysing the results of those tests is carried out by Dr Mike Sloan. The really useful thing about this research is that we're taking conventional fibres. So these are fibres, materials you can buy off the shelf, so you're talking about stretching materials, elastomeric materials like polyurethane, and then you're combining them with a higher-performance fibre, like a Dyneema, people probably heard of that, also ultra-high-stiffness carbon fibres. And it's the method in which we combine them that gives the auxetic effect. So it's conventional materials in a helical arrangement that gives the auxetic effect. And there's a number of parameters we can change. We're looking at the stiffness ratio between the two fibres and also the angle at which the second fibre is wrapped around the middle fibre. We've designed and built a purposely designed spinner here at Exeter and we can load our core fibre onto a single spool feed spool. That's taken up at the end on a, on a take-up spool. And we just program in the relative speeds of the actual spools and I will manufacture a yarn, very accurately controlling what we call the wrap angle, so how tightly the wrap fibre is wrapped around the core fibre. Then that yarn will then go back to the mechanical testing machine and I'll add on some extra um, hardware that we've got and we'll characterise its mechanical performance but also its shape change, how auxetic is it, when it gets this much longer, how much wider does it get then those most promising yarns will go forward onto our loom. The loom that we actually use is designed and sold as a craft loom. There's nothing special that we've done to the bit of equipment. There's no modifications that we've made. The only thing we do is insert our auxetic yarns to make an auxetic textile. And by using the computer-controlled software on the loom, we can actually change the weave pattern as well. So we can go from a straightforward, what we call a checkerboard weave, right up to complicated twill weaves. So that's another parameter that we can change using the loom as well. A crucial part of the design process involves the computer modelling work carried out by Julian Wright, a research fellow at the university. If we want to make enough yarn to make a curtain-sized piece of fabric, for example, that will be several hours' worth of time. So that's a very expensive mistake if we don't get the yarn right at the design stage. That's a key facet of the computer modelling, is to be able to get the yarn right without actually having to spend hours making it and then seeing if it was right. We want to know it's going to be right when we've made it. The computer modelling at this stage is concentrated on the yarns, so we're not yet modelling the textiles and we're certainly not yet modelling the explosions. We're specifically interested in how will the yarn behave when we stretch it, how fat do we need to make it, how stiff do we need to make one or more of the components, what angle do we have to wrap the helical component at, how far can we pull it. One of the major parts of the modelling activity at the moment is to be able to predict the behaviour of the yarn from a knowledge of the two components. We know what polyurethane's like, we know what polyamide is like, for example. What we would like to know is if we wrap those two together, how will they behave? The major achievement so far of the research, certainly in the context of the computer model, is that we now have very detailed knowledge. We understand very well how to design a helical auxetic yarn. The tests that the team have used to put the material through its paces show that the shockwave from a bomb blast travels more than 1,500 miles per hour. Ken and Mike explain what the tests have shown. The very first thing you see is the light that comes from the blast 
and then a pressure wave arrives from the explosion and that moves the curtain inwards as you might expect it to do and then following on from that you then get destructive damage so if you have a glass window the glass shatters and breaks now what happens is the curtain is moved by the pressure wave first and because our fabric is auxetic, it opens out in a particular way. And the curtain at that stage is not damaged by the blast at all. So the glass fragments then arrive after the pressure wave and are essentially captured by the curtain. And at this point, the curtain starts returning to its original shape. It stops ballooning out. It moves back in the other direction. And in fact, what we see is the glass fragments collected and essentially thrown back, almost like a trampoline effect, back out of the room. So you can see the energy-absorbing mechanisms taking place while this process is going on. And what's been particularly useful is to be able to do the tests with very high-speed cameras to see exactly what the mechanisms are so we can understand how the total process works. Not only have we watched the, the blasts under high-speed video, we've got pressure sensors before and after the curtains. And the two things that are really interesting are the peak pressures that we measure, but also the time duration. And when you take the area under that curve, you get what we call the impulse, and that's really the energy that's experienced as a function of the blast. And our preliminary data is showing the curtains give a 25% reduction in that impulse. So a 25% reduction in the energy that somebody the other side of the window would experience. So it's looking really promising, and you know we can only go forwards from here. Ken hopes it won't be too long before we see the fabric in general use. I would say that within five years you could see commercial fabrics on the market providing they meet the promise that we believe they're going to do. It was Ken Evans, Mike Sloan and Julian Wright from the University of Exeter and they were talking to the EPSRC's Jane Reck. The EPSRC is the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, one of the big research councils in the UK. And you can actually hear a longer version of that interview, which the EPSRC have put on iTunes, um, that's in their Pioneer podcast, or if you go to nakedscientists.com forward slash news, we've got a YouTube clip with some nice pictures of some of that top technology being discussed on our site, alongside details of all of the other news stories that we've discussed so far this week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.